You see that stupid number in your checking account? It's called wasted potential. Now I'm gonna let you in on a little secret about something called the portfolio. And it's not gonna build itself, okay? Without you, it's just another number on a screen. Like a jungle full of bananas and no ape in sight. Well, I'm gonna take you to that jungle. Because in the case of these portfolios, it is gonna be up to each and every one of you. My speculative degenerates, my apes, and of course my apets, who will not hit the cell until your account either flies or flops and dies! Welcome back everyone to Always Picking Electric Securities. Do you have your counters set? Are you counting down to Christmas yet? Because it's December 1st, 2021, and on today's episode, I'm going to be running down over the stocks I bought for this Apes portfolio, along with giving you an update on all the securities I'm currently holding in this portfolio right now. Then I'm also going to be letting you know what my plan is for the crypto segment moving forward. And then for the gambling segment, I'll be recapping my underdog picks and let you know how my round robins did. And then I'll be taking a closer look at the games being played today and tomorrow, and I'll let you know from all the sports I look at what picks I like. Then finally to wrap up this episode, I'm going to be breaking down what accounts receivables are. So by the end of this episode, you should have a better understanding of what accounts receivables are, and how they get calculated on a balance sheet, and my guess is you'll learn something new about them today that you didn't know already. Well, I hope you enjoy the episode. Financial Disclaimer Since this is an investing podcast, I will give out the disclaimer that everything I do on this podcast has the potential to reach 100% loss. Welcome back, apes and retail investors that think alike. Before I dive into the investing segment, I wanted to let you know how I plan on breaking down my Apes portfolio updates from here on out. I'll be breaking down the Apes portfolio updates from here on out at the very beginning of this investing segment. My plan will be to let you know what the total value is for the securities segment, the cryptocurrency segment, and the gambling segment. After letting you know how much is in each section, I'm going to let you know what the total value of this portfolio is. And since the inception date, along with all of the deposits I've made, how much I'm up or down in the total portfolio value. So until something in the future changes, this will be how I plan on giving my Apes portfolio update from here on out. So today, as of December 1st, my portfolio valuation in the securities segment is at $510.07. For the cryptocurrency segment, it's $283.84. And for the betting segment, it's $329.01. Together, this puts my total at $1,122.92. Since I deposited $100 on the last episode, that's why the subtotal jumped so much. So I didn't make an extra $100, I've only made $22.92 in this portfolio. So, and I'm only up 2% since I started, but if we're measuring one month performance, eh, it's still too early to tell. I want to see what this portfolio is valued at in a couple years, not what it's valued at right now after one month. So now that I've clarified how I'll be doing my Apes portfolio updates for the future, let me move on to some action that actually occurred the past couple days. 
So on Monday after the episode was uploaded, I did as I promised and I put $50 into the TD Ameritrade account and $50 into my Coinbase account. So now in total, I've put about $1,100 in this portfolio. So anything that's going to be valued below it will be considered a loss. I also put in the three trades I told you I would and two of them hit. So yesterday on November 30th, I was able to buy five shares of computer share at the price of $13.50 and then I was also able to buy Super League Gaming at the price of $3.25 and I bought 20 shares of that. Now I might have been a little bit misleading by saying computer share wouldn't have a fee because as it turns out even though it's an ADR there's still a commission fee on it because it's considered an over-the-counter trade. So I wound up paying about $6.50 for the fee but it's definitely way less than if I actually paid for the foreign stock, which by then would have been at least a $50 fee. So if the fee is something that draws you back, by all means, I completely understand you don't have to invest your money in this stock. But now I have two more positions added to my portfolio. I have my one share of GameStop that I bought at $202, and now I have the five shares of Computer Share and 20 shares of Super League Gaming. On top of that, I still have my one Super League gaming contract that's going to be expiring next year in April, and the Cortezyme option that right now is pretty much valued at worthless. Because I bought this contract for 10 cents, and right now it's being valued at below a penny because that's how far I am from my bet. It's okay though, it was just a $10 bet I was risking anyways. So the one trade that did not hit was my Chegg trade. Now I placed the buy limit for $20, and honestly looking at it right now, I don't know if it's going to hit that, but I'm going to keep my price target at $20 even if this stock starts shooting upwards because I'm just going to stay true to my word. But what I will say is I think Chegg has a lot of potential to make an upwards run. I don't really have enough money right now in my personal accounts to start throwing around at this stock, but if I did have any bit of buying power, I'm telling you right now I would put at least a small play in it. And by a small play, that means I would buy at least 5-10 to 10 shares of it. I wouldn't really mess with options, but if you're asking me for advice, I would look at a $50 call option anywhere between a month or two out. That would just be my short-term speculation. I would try and flip that option as quickly as possible though. If you're actually just buying the stock, then I would just hold the stock until it at least hits back up to $40. Because I think at some point in the future, this will go back to $40 or $50. So right now it's extremely undervalued. But I'm going to try and snag it at $20 a pop, so I'm just going to be patient with this stock and hope that it dips a little bit more. So now in total with the amount of money I've spent in my securities for this portfolio and the amount of money I have on reserve for my Chegg play, I'm only going to have about $67 left to be playing with stocks and options. So I won't be scalping for plays, but if something stands out there, at least I'll have $60 to throw at it. But now I'll be moving on to another segment that I haven't really talked too much about lately. And that's the crypto segment. I wound up putting $50 in my Coinbase account, so now I have about $150 of cash to play with. So I've chosen most of the securities I like for the investing segment, and I still have $60 to play around, so if an option looks enticing or if we find a stock, we can throw some money at it. But now for the next week or two, I'll be focusing in on the crypto segment. And recently, I've been doing some more reading and just basic generic reading on articles and blockchains and stuff like that, so I can actually have something to explain on this podcast in the crypto segment. And I've come to a realization. There's so many coins out there, I can just start talking about what the coin's projects are on this podcast and at least give you my interpretation of what the coin's project is. And as time goes on, you can decide if that coin fits something that you want to invest in. 
because at the end of the day, all of the readings I've done so far have brought me to one conclusion. These coins can be viewed as a stock, company, or just any kind of huge project that if you think it will have success in the future, is an investment right now. So let me tell you what my game plan will be for the upcoming segments whenever I talk about cryptos. My plan will be to talk about third generation projects in certain coins, and after reading the white papers of them, I'll try and break down what the coin's project is, and what I think they're going to be trying to tackle in the financial industry. Because after all, these crypto coins and all these altcoins are only being created to decentralize everything. This crypto movement is one huge decentralization movement. Which means taking the power from all the intermediaries and all these preceding market makers and distributing it to the people. It's a tough slate and a lot to ask, but with certain coins and projects that go right, if you put your money in it, you can make a killing off of it, and then you can start seeing the bigger picture. But for now, let's try to stick with making money off of these. So let me give you some insight into some new things I've recently found out about the crypto world. And this might not be new information to you if you're familiar with the crypto world, but to anyone who's very confused, this might actually help. I found out that technically, we're in the third generation of this crypto world. So that means the first and second generation have already passed. So what does this mean? Well, I did a little Google search into the three generations of the crypto market, and I read a quick article about it. And now Bitcoin and Ethereum are starting to make a whole lot more sense. If you remember, I gave you my basic and very basic understandings of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Doge a couple episodes ago, and now I'm going to try and break down these generations using these three coins, primarily more Bitcoin and Ethereum, since Doge is just my first lucky coin I got into and seems to have made me some money. But in terms of this crypto world, the first generation was designed to improve the financial system. Because Bitcoin was launched in 2009 as a way to try and decentralize finance because of everything that was occurring after the 08 crash. And all of this quantitative easing that was being put in place, you can assume that a lot of people that knew what was going on with money were not big fans. And certain bailouts literally gifted the survival of certain banks. Well, in decentralized finance, if someone made a wrong bet, they deserve to be liquidated and go under and never have the chance to make that bet again. In terms of government and corporate finance, you just deserve a bailout. So this is why Bitcoin was created. As a way to try and improve the system. Well, that's what the first generation of the crypto world was. So at first, Bitcoin's conceptual idea was just made to try and improve a financial structure. And this most likely means improving that revolving line of credit improving liquidity issues, the reliability of transactions, and the speed of these transactions. So what Bitcoin's blockchain servers were meant to do is just solve these basic financial problems. And that's what the first generation of the crypto market was. Now comes the second generation, where the first generation was just put in place to try and fix some underlying issues in the financial market itself already. The second generation of crypto was to add a layer of conditions and something called smart contracts to these transactions. So what does this mean? Well, this means that you can now trade these coins after a certain condition is met. So now as intermediaries, you can exchange these coins if another service was performed or if a product was delivered. And the code is written for something like this in blockchains. So a pretty simple example would be if I wanted to trade with somebody, something that I had, and we were going to exchange cryptocurrencies. Well, if I'm shipping it to him, 
Maybe I want to hold on to my cryptocurrency until the package is actually delivered. So as soon as the package gets delivered to his house and it gets scanned through let's say UPS's system or whatever, the tracking code can now be put online and by using all of this computer science and technology, the service can be viewed as complete. And if we're using a certain coin that has smart contracts, I can enable it that as soon as the tracking reaches his house, my coins transfer over or his coins transfer over. So I hope that didn't sound too confusing, but what this does is it literally removes a middleman. Because now in theory, I can send something to anyone out there in the world, and I have full reliability that I don't need to send a payment until it gets received, which is something companies do. And now you as an individual have that option. Well, right now since everything is still in infancy, you have to trial and error with it. But what this second generation of crypto did was just create contractual agreements that can actually be applied to the transactions of these trades, which helps a lot, especially if people are trading across the world. Because if you're waiting on a service to be done, you don't want to pay them up in front and then possibly have a scam occur where they never actually do the service. So in my opinion, that's what's huge about these smart contracts. But if we've got these smart contracts in place and it's built off of Ethereum's second layer, what seems to be the issue? Well, the issue that cryptocurrencies have now run into, primarily Bitcoin and Ethereum, is scalability. Because a lot of users want to use this interface, the amount of coins that are actually able to be used in the system are limited. Remember how Bitcoin has a fixed amount? Yeah, so when the demand goes through the roof, so is the price. In Ethereum, although it doesn't have a fixed amount, it doesn't have a huge amount of coins. And if the demand for Ethereum's platform use is huge, and even bigger than the amount of coins that get reprinted and recirculated, then the price is going to continue to shoot up. And it's creating a problem in scaling these projects to size, which is where the third generation comes in. This third generation, which is the generation that we are now in for crypto, is finding a way to scale everything I said so that everything functions as one. Now, I'm still trying to understand a lot of this and learn it, so please bear with me. But, the best way I can wrap my brain around it is to think back in those colonial times. Now I'm not saying to go back in your history book and actually read this part, but do you remember that small time period in school when they were talking about how different states had different monies? And how it was very confusing when one citizen from one state went to another because they had to exchange this currency and it just created this huge debacle? Well think of this third generation and all these altcoins right now being in that exact same situation. Right now you've got a lot of these altcoins that can't transact with each other. There's a whole lot of their own currencies and there's no medium where these languages can be shared together. So what this third generation of the crypto market is going to try and solve is to resolve these fundamental flaws in scalability of the blockchains so that when there's a lot of mass adoption by the public and people on these coins and on these projects, there's not going to be slow transaction times and it's not going to be on a closed system like Bitcoin. So if you weren't able to understand anything at all I just said about the first, second and leading up to the third generation of the crypto market, don't worry. I'm hoping that as I talk about certain crypto projects here in the future, eventually these will start to make sense. Right now, I have just a faint grasp on it, but I do see the potential in this crypto market, which is why I have it in my portfolio in the first place. So that's going to be wrapping up today's investing segment. I just wanted to let everyone know what stock positions I added to this portfolio and what my plan is for the crypto segment in the upcoming weeks. 
I also plan on buying certain cryptos, but before I buy it on this podcast, I want to at least talk about the projects. So on Friday, I'll be briefly discussing three coins projects. And the tickers for these coins are ADA, LRC, and BAT. And then after I talk about these three projects and which ones I think will have the most potential for the future, I'm going to let you know which ones I want to buy. And I'm most likely going to be buying them over the weekend just as a way to show you that you can trade on this crypto market 24-7. And how even though there are some similarities, it's an extremely different market in comparison to the stock market and the derivatives market. So until next time, ladies and gentlemen, ape out. Welcome back, my friendly degenerates and anyone that just likes to listen to this segment of my podcast. For today's sports gambling segment, I'm going to recap my underdog round robins I created And then I'll be giving you some new bet slips and including some new sports that I haven't bet on yet for this podcast. So without wasting any more time, let me dive straight into the two round robins I had on Monday. The first of which was just a mixed round robin of some basketball and Monday night football. Now, my bet slip contained of the Sixers to win by at least 14, the Bulls to win by 6, and the Jazz to win by 8 in the NBA, For college basketball, I had Kentucky to win by at least 31, Texas to win by 22, and Gonzaga to win by at least 31. And then I originally said I was picking Seattle since they were an underdog, but by the time I wound up making the pick, they wound up being a favorite, so I chose Seattle's spread, which was to win by at least 1. And then as promised, I picked the over in that game. This bet slip, in one word, was a yikes, because I only went 2 for 8. So that means I only got one of my parlays correct out of the 28 created. And as you can expect, my returns on it was pretty horrible. The only two selections that won were the Bulls winning by at least 6 and the Jazz to win by 8. Everything else lost, so by risking $28 on this, I actually lost $24.36. But I'm not even sweating, because this next bet slip I'm about to introduce you to is exactly why I do round robins, and I think I'm going to start adjusting my game plan, especially for the round robin bet picking, because this one was my all NBA dogs round robin. So for this round robin, on Monday, I chose every single NBA game, and I chose the underdog money line. Well, for all of them except for the Sixers game. And what my bet slip looked like was the Nuggets, Thunder, Pacers, Hornets, Spurs, Cavs, Blazers, and Pelicans to win. Now I only went 4 for 8 on this bet slip, but remember how on Monday I said I hope this bet slip at least goes 4 for 8 so I can show you why I make round robins with plus money bets instead of minus money bets? Well what I meant by that is that by picking underdogs, all of the odds lines were plus money. And by going 4 for 8 in my bet slip, with the only winners being the Nuggets, the Spurs, the Cavs, and the Pelicans, my $28 risked actually won $32.11. And I only went 50%. So I got 100% gain on this bet slip, and I only went 50% with my picks. Granted they were all underdog picks, that's exactly my point. All of my selections were plus on the odds side. So I think from here on out, what my tactic will be with these round robins is to try and find either underdogs or mix in some plus money odds with them. 
because I think this is truly how I could get my account up in gambling. I've told you how I'm not really a good singles better, and that means if I were to go game to game betting every single one, in the long run I would be losing money. But what I found out is this little parlay system with at least plus money odds. And I've just proved, and I've just proved that when I pick all of these odds lines that have negative implications on them, I don't typically do as well on my round robins. The round robins that I'm mostly profitable in have all had plus money on their odds. So from here on out, when I create round robins, I'm going to do my best to make sure that they're either all underdog picks or there's at least a little bit of plus money on it. If I'm going to be picking betting odds that are negative, I'm either going to be putting a larger single play on it or I'm going to parlay it with something else. I guess I wanted to introduce you to the world of gambling with something that you don't normally start off with. Because typically when you start off gambling, you're not going to start off in this round robin bet setting. Someone's going to either tell you to bet up singles or to make two team parlays of stuff. But on this podcast, I want to show you everything because I want you to decide what works for you and what doesn't. And what I'm determining works for me is picking plus money odds, at least in these round robin bet formats. If I pick the negative money odds, it seems that I have to go more than 4 for 8 to even be profitable. And I'm not going to lie, when it comes to a betting standpoint, I don't like myself going more than 50%. And that's just being truthful. And the proof is in the pudding. I mean, I went 4 for 8 and I still made 100% return on that one bet slip. So aside from trying to make better picks by just diving deeper and getting better analysis... I'm going to try and pick up some of the bad trends that I make on this podcast and revert them and learn from them. So I guess I'm going to try and implement this new round robin betting scheme and see if it helps out more. I'll come back to it further down the line if it looks like all of the plus money odds I'm choosing are always losing, but I'm always going to be searching for a more efficient way to do things. And I think in terms of this round robin betting schematic, it makes zero sense to parlay all of these odds with negative implications on it because there's way more money to be made if it's a plus money odd. So with all this said, let me recap the bet slip I had yesterday which comprised of choosing all the NBA underdogs for the game slate as well and then I also mixed in Duke, Houston, and Purdue to cover their spreads for college basketball. For this bet slip, I had Duke to win by at least two, Houston to cover their hefty 32.5 point spread, Purdue to win by at least 11, and then the Moneyline underdogs were the New York Knicks, the Grizzlies, the Warriors, the Kings, and the Pistons for that day. Unfortunately, this bet slip also didn't do too hot. I wound up only going 3 for 8 with the picks, and by risking 28 total dollars, I lost $15.15. The losses aren't as bad as they should be, and that's just because one of the bet picks that won was a plus money implication. Regardless, the only picks that helped me win this bet was Houston to win by at least 32, Purdue to win by at least 11, and then the Grizzlies were the only team on the slate that were able to pick up an upset win. It may seem like a bummer since in the short run I've been losing on some of these bet slips, but as long as I stick with my intuition and gut in the long run, I'll see if my plays truly work. Because all I need is a little luck swing, and as long as I'm not repeating the same mistakes and I'm trying to learn from them, that's the most I can ask for in this gambling world. Which is why I will always be experimenting with my gambling picks. So now that I'm going to be experimenting around with the betting segment, let me dive into the bets I have outlined for today and tomorrow. 
For today, I'm going to be diving into college basketball, the NBA, soccer, and I'm also going to be adding hockey to the slip. Now full disclosure, I don't follow hockey too often, but I figure it doesn't hurt to just pick random bets every now and then and just see what side of the coin I land on. Plus, this way, I'm forcing myself to cover hockey at least in one way, so sometime down the line, if I start analyzing sports more in depth, you'll at least have some hockey talk on this podcast. Because I care about all sports, as long as I can guess the right side. My plan for today's bet picks is to make two three-team parlays, and to introduce a new round-robin bet. Since the parlays are easier to explain, let me dive straight into those. So from college basketball, I like UCLA to cover their spread against Colorado at home, and then I also like Villanova to cover their spread against Pennsylvania on the road. Now I'm going to be pairing these two college basketball games with the hockey game. From hockey, I'm going to be choosing the Golden Knights to cover their spread against the Ducks. So together, this is going to be my first three-team pick parlay. I like UCLA, Villanova, and the Golden Knights to cover their spread. And I'm going to be putting a $10 wager on this parlay. Now my second three-team pick parlay is going to come from two selections from the NBA and then one again from hockey. In the NBA, I'm going to choose the Sixers to cover the spread against the Celtics and then the Mavs to cover their spread against the Pelicans. Moving over to hockey, I'm going to choose the Red Wings to cover their spread against the Kraken at home. So this slate is going to be the Mavs, the Sixers, and the Red Wings to cover their spreads respectively. And I'm going to risk $10 on this parlay as well. So for the two parlays I'm creating, I'm risking $20 total dollars, and I'm relying on three things to happen for each one of those so I can win the bet slip. And now I'll be switching over to the new round robin I want to introduce. So before I introduce it, I'll be giving out the picks like I would in my traditional round robins. And since this is the first experimental round robin I'm doing this way, I'm going to be choosing soccer as a way to demonstrate this bet slip. So from the La Liga side, I like Real Madrid to cover whatever their spread is against the Athletic Club. And then for the next four slates, I'm going to be going to the Premier League. In the Premier League, I like Liverpool, Manchester City, and Chelsea to all cover their spreads, which is having them win by at least two goals. And then I like West Ham to beat Brighton at home straight up which is just their money line. So what my selections for this round robin are going to be is West Ham's money line and then Real Madrid, Liverpool, Manchester City, and Chelsea to cover their spreads. Now typically I told you that I set these in parlays of twos. So what this would mean is it would have all of these five selections and it would make as many combinations of two as possible. Now what I'm going to be doing differently with this round robin is instead of having it making parlays of two, I'm actually going to have it make parlays of three. So now instead of it creating a parlay of let's say Real Madrid and West Ham and then Real Madrid and Liverpool and then Real Madrid and Man City and Real Madrid and Chelsea and then so on until all the combinations are filled, it's going to make parlays of three. So now it's going to be Real Madrid, West Ham and Liverpool are one parlay. Real Madrid, West Ham and Manchester City are now a second parlay. So now you see the only difference is now instead of creating parlays of two for all the selections I have, it's going to be creating a parlay of three for all the selections. The only reason I'm doing this is because the implications for making your money are a lot larger, but now I'm being even riskier because instead of needing at least two things to hit, I need at least three of the five options to hit for me to even start making money on this bet slip. But by having only five selections, 
This round robin's only going to be creating 10 parlays for me. And I'm going to be putting a $1 risk on this bet slip, so I'm going to be risking 10 total dollars. So once again, I'll recap that I'm going to be making a round robin with Real Madrid, Liverpool, Manchester City, and Chelsea to cover their spread, and then West Ham to straight up win their money line. I'm going to be making this a parlay of three instead of a parlay of two, how I've done in the past on this podcast. And then together in total, I'll be risking about $30 today for gambling. $20 for my two parlays with $10 a pop on each of them. And then $10 on this one parlays of three round robin, which includes my soccer selections. So now I'll be moving on to the selections I have for tomorrow. For tomorrow, I'm going to be doing the same methods. I'm going to be creating two parlays and one round robin. Now for tomorrow's parlays, I'm going to make one from the NBA and then one from the NHL. My NBA parlay is going to be the Bulls to cover their spread against the Knicks, the Suns to cover their spread against the Pistons, and then the Bucks to cover their spread against the Raptors. I'm going to be parlaying all three of those selections and I'll put $10 risk on it as well. So I have the Bulls, Suns, and Bucks to cover their spreads tomorrow. Moving over to hockey, I'm going to choose the Wild to cover their spread against the Devils, the Panthers to cover their spread against the Sabres, and then the Flame to cover their spread against the Kings. And then I'll be risking $10 on that one as well. So I think the Wild, the Panthers, and the Flames can all cover their spreads tomorrow as well. And then finally I'll wrap up tomorrow with another round robin. Personally, I just like having these round robin bet slips open, because like you saw that one Thursday night, if I manage to go perfect, the profits are crazy in terms of what money I put in. And this round robin I'm going to create is one with some mixed sports in it. So going to soccer, in the Premier League, I like Tottenham to beat Brentford and Manchester United to beat Arsenal. I'll be choosing whichever lines have better implications for both of them. So here's what I mean by that. Let's say Manchester United is a heavy favorite and their money line is minus 300. And then let's say them to cover is put at minus one and a half goals. So they're expected to win by two goals if they cover. The line to cover that two goals is going to be way less than that minus 300. So it might be minus 150 or even a plus money line odd. What I'm going to be doing in situations like that is instead of choosing Manchester United's money line, I'm going to be choosing the spread. Because at the end of the day, in these round robins, I want to choose something that has better odd implications. So now that I got myself sidetracked a little bit, let me continue back on this bet slip, and I'll recap it at the end so you can quickly bet it if you want to. Aside from the two soccer games I have on this slate, I'll be going over to Thursday Night Football, and I want to choose the New Orleans Saints to win just because they're also an underdog. Not only are they an underdog at home, but the Dallas Cowboys are going to have some serious COVID issues heading in, and they might not even have their head coach. And on paper, Dallas has every reason to win this game, but I'm just going to stick to being a firm believer that Dallas is going to find a way to choke this game and make the NFC East a little bit more wide open. And since this bet slip only comprises of three picks so far, the final five picks I'm going to have come all from the NBA slate, because tomorrow there's only going to be five games on. So I'm going to be choosing the underdog in all five of those games. And I know it might seem, again, counterintuitive with that one three-team parlay I made, but this is specifically just on the off chance that the underdogs win. And also, it would help my round-robin parlays. So the games that are going to be playing tomorrow are the Bucks and Raptors, the Bulls and the Knicks, the Thunder and Grizzlies, the Pistons and the Suns, and then to wrap it up, the Spurs and the Blazers. 
I'm not entirely sure which ones are underdogs as of yet, but as soon as the odds come up, I'll be making the picks on which ones are underdogs. And again, if one of them isn't a clear-cut underdog, I'll choose the away team. And unlike the last round robin I just made where I said I'm going to make it parlays of three, on this one, I'm just going to stick with the parlays of two. So I'm going to stick to the traditional round robin I've done on this podcast, and I'm not going to change it up like I did the last one. Because the last one had five selections, and I just wanted to risk the parlays of three method, this one, I'm going to want to stick to a more traditional round robin I've been creating. So to recap that bet slip, because I may have done a little bit extra talking, in the soccer leagues, I like Tottenham and Manchester United to win or cover their spreads, whichever one have better odds. I like the Saints and Thursday Night Football to get their win against Dallas. And then hopping over to all the NBA games, I'll be choosing all five of the underdogs in each of those games. So together, that's going to be eight total picks. And like on every single traditional round robin, I'll put a $1 bet risk on it, which will risk 28 total dollars. So for tomorrow, I'll only be risking $48 by having the two parlays, $10 a pop on each, and my one traditional round robin created. Because I did a lot more explaining than I normally would for these picks, I'm going to recap every single pick really quickly right now, just in case you didn't hear it. So for today, one of my first parlays is going to be UCLA and Villanova in college basketball to cover their spreads, tied with the Golden Knights in hockey to cover their spread. That's the first parlay I have, and I'm putting $10 on it. My second one is going to be the Red Wings in the NHL to cover their spread, and then in the NBA, the Sixers and the Mavs to cover their spreads as well. I'm putting $10 risk on that. And then I'm also experimenting with the new round robin, which is one that creates parlays of three as opposed to parlays of two. And the selections I have for that is Real Madrid, Liverpool, Manchester City, and Chelsea to cover their spreads, and West Ham to straight up get their money line win. Hopping over to tomorrow, for my parlays I have, I like the Bulls, Suns, and Bucks to cover their spreads respectively in the NBA, and then for the NHL, I like the Wild, Panthers, and Flames to cover their spreads. I'll be putting $10 a pop on each one of those as well. And then the final bet slip I have, which is a traditional round robin, is going to be Tottenham and Manchester United to win or cover their spreads, whichever has better betting odds, the Saints to straight up win, and then all of the NBA games, which should be five of them, I'm going to be choosing the underdog. Together, over the span of today and tomorrow, I'll be risking $78 from the gambling segment. So worst case scenario, every single pick I said is wrong, and I'll be losing $78. Best case scenario, not even sure because I don't have it mapped out yet, but we'll wait and see. So whether you decide to fade or follow my picks, I hope that if you're listening to this podcast, you're finding a way to make money. And until next time, my degenerates, ape out. Welcome back class. Today's lesson is going to be all about accounts receivable. So what is an accounts receivable? Well, it's money that's often owed to a company because of a product or service that they've offered and they have not collected yet. This account is often an account that is extended as a line of credit by the company with terms that can vary anywhere between a few days up to a fiscal year or the calendar year itself. 
So basically what accounts receivables are is money that the company has not received yet. So in terms of your credit card companies, whenever you rack up your statement balances for your credit cards, that credit is viewed as an account receivable for the credit card company. For you, it's viewed as an account payable. So these accounts receivables and account payable are roughly the same thing, just vice versa of each other. Or if you're using your credit card to buy things off of a website, whatever company that website is, when you use your credit card to buy it, they don't get the payment right away. So they're gonna view that credit payment as an account receivable. And then when you pay off your credit card, that credit company can now pay off the website. And once that website gets paid, they can now convert that accounts receivable into cash or they can pay off any of the bills they have. And this is what's called a revolving line of credit. So what are important uses for these account receivables? Well, it gives you as an investor the chance to measure a company's liquidity for short-term obligations. So you can see how much a company's cash is on hand and then you can also take their accounts receivables to get a rough idea if they can even pay off their expenses for this upcoming year. This is especially helpful during unprecedented times for that company's life cycle. So if it seems like a company is starting to struggle, you want to make sure that they can at least survive for the upcoming year and hopefully they can get themselves out of it. Another important thing you can measure this accounts receivable factor with is the accounts receivable turnover rate. And what this accounts receivable turnover ratio is, is it shows you how much a company collects within a given year, the actual credit that is given to them. So how would you do this? Well, if you took the beginning year of the accounts receivable that a company had, and you added it to the ending year accounts receivable, and divide it by two so you get the average, you then would want to take the company's credit sales or any kinds of money inflows that they rely on based off of credit, and then you would divide it by that average. And a typical example of what I just stated would be if you were to take, let's say, credit sales for an online website company and divide it by this average accounts receivable number. What's going to happen is you're going to get a number. So let's say that the number is 12. What this number 12 means is that for that given year, because you took the beginning year's accounts receivable and ending year's accounts receivable, is that for that whole year, this company was able to cash out 12 times off of their credit sales. So now by getting that number 12, you can take all the days in a year, which I'll just say is 365 without getting too nitty gritty over small things, and divide it by 12. And then you can get a rough estimate for how often a company can collect on its credit sales and how often it cashes in on its accounts receivables. So this kind of information helps because if you notice that the number is around 30, then that's a good thing because that means about once a month a company can collect on its receivables. But let's say the number is 60 and I'm just throwing that number out there. What this would mean is that typically a company can only collect on its accounts receivables once every two months. Now, depending on what kind of business that company is in, it might be detrimental to the company if they can't seem to collect on their accounts receivables every single month. So those are just some basic uses on what accounts receivables can be used for. So some examples of accounts receivables, the most basic ones, are subscriptions and sales on credit. So for subscription-based companies like Spotify, Netflix, and Epidemic Sounds, which is the website I use to be able to play copywritten songs and sounds, the monthly payments you make to these companies, or even if you buy the yearly subscription packages, are going to be considered accounts receivable for them. So they're going to have to financially find a way to break this down on a month-to-month -month scale so they don't mislead their investors. 
And when I explain later on about bad debt expenses, you'll understand why they have to do this on a month-to-month -month expense. Even if you buy the yearly subscription plan, they still have to break down your yearly revenue on a month-to-month -month basis. So for example, I bought the yearly subscription plan for Epidemic Sounds, and even though I paid the full price, Epidemic Sounds right now on their financial statements is only able to record the revenue I gave them after the month finishes because then that's considered me paying for the service that they provided for me, even if I paid for it in advance. Now another common form of accounts receivable is paying on credit cards or even store credit for that matter of fact. Because like I said earlier, when you have a credit card, your credit card company views your debt as an account receivable. That means when you're paying with a credit card somewhere else, the sales revenue the company actually receives aren't going to be recorded as cash right away. It's going to be recorded as an account receivable because they're unsure if you're actually going to be paying off your credit card debt, which in turn lets them get paid. And then store credit for whichever store you're in works exactly the same way. Because think about it and think what a credit card is. It's just an agreement that you can buy whatever you want now in the moment and then you're going to be paying that off within the next 30 months or next month or whatever your scheduled payment date is. So this agreement to pay off this money in the future is going to be an account receivable for someone and it's going to be an account payable for you. So when you're paying with your credit card to buy anything off of these online websites, these online websites aren't going to be able to cash in on your money just yet. But what companies are allowed to do is put the amount of credit they have that's going to be collected in the near future on their balance sheet. So even though they technically can't say we've collected all this money, they can show investors roughly how much of it is expected to get collected. And this takes me to my next topic because I said how much of it is expected to get collected. Because remember, this is credit you're dealing with. And if no one pays that credit, then someone's going to be left holding the bag because this was all an agreement that someone's going to pay. And if someone's not paying, then someone along this revolving credit line is going to have to hold the bag and pay up the costs. And in the world of accounts receivable, there's already methods in place to give investors a good estimation of how much of this money is actually expected to be collected. Because it would be misleading to tell an investor that you expect to collect 100% of the credit. Because there's always people out there that don't pay their statement balances in full, which then is going to diminish the amount of cash inflows you expected for that certain month. And also, in the worst case scenario, when you have a lot of people defaulting on their credit, they're not going to be able to actually make the payment in general, so then you're definitely going to be missing certain cash flows that you expected. And this leads me to my next talking point, which is bad debt expense. Now what bad debt expense is, is it's an expense that's recognized once it's clear that certain debt will not get paid off. In terms of the account receivable world, this is the last step you would take once you are certain that you are not going to receive payment off of the credit or the debt that you made out for. And what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to write it off. And what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to let the investors know exactly how much this account has accumulated and what it is. Now there's two ways to keep track of bad debt expense. One of the most common and simplistic ways is the direct write-off method. But this method is primarily used for tax purposes only because what you're doing is you're expensing the bad debt as soon as you find out that it's uncollectible. The reason this doesn't conform to the gap principles is because it doesn't follow the matching principle. 
which requires that expenses are matched with the related revenues in a similar accounting period. So what I mean by that is let's say you make a sale on something today and six months later you find out you're not going to be able to collect money off of that credit card. You're going to write it off six months later. But for gap principles, you're not able to see the future. So there's no way you could possibly have known that as soon as the sale got recorded. But in terms of gap, you would have broken a rule because you're supposed to estimate how much of the total accounts receivable in that monthly period you actually expect to receive. Even if you can't guess that one person isn't going to pay six months in advance, you can give investors an estimate based off of historical figures in the past with your own company so that they get a rough idea of how much of your actual credit lines you expect to collect upon. So this direct write-off method is very helpful for tax purposes because you know exactly when you can say you didn't collect debt in terms of tax purposes, but in terms of following the gap procedures, it doesn't. And that's why companies have to use the allowance method when it comes to recording their accounts receivables. Now I'm going to get into some quick accounting talk and it's only going to last for about a minute. But what the allowance method does is you're essentially going to be debiting your bad debt expense and crediting your allowance for doubtful accounts. This allowance for doubtful accounts is considered a contra asset because typically you would debit your assets because it means you're receiving something. When you credit an asset, it means you're losing something. But this allowance for doubtful accounts is directly linked to the accounts receivable. So anything that's put in this allowance for doubtful accounts is actually going to be subtracting from the accounts receivable. And this is a way that you can record your bad debt expense on your income statement and also simultaneously removing your accounts receivable from your balance sheet using a journal entry. And by doing this, you'll know exactly how much the balance is left in your allowance for doubtful accounts, so you can use this in future calculations. So for the future calculations you make, there's two ways you can estimate bad debt. Companies can take a percentage of their net sales and base it on their historical bad debt experience. So let's say in the past, after making a really sweaty Excel spreadsheet, you're able to find out that you typically don't collect 2.5% of your credit sales month to month. What this means is for the upcoming month, when you find out that you made, let's say, $100 in credit sales, you're not going to be able to include that 100 number for accounts receivable because you can't assume that you're going to collect 100%. You're going to have to subtract away 2.5% because based on your historical data, it shows that you typically don't collect the 2.5%. And by doing this, you're conforming with the gap method and you're following the allowance method. Now another way you can do this, if net sales isn't really a good measurement, is by making a default probability table. And what you're going to be doing is you're going to take all of the account receivable pools you have and you're going to be splitting it up by the age of the account outstanding. So let's say you have certain accounts receivables that haven't been paid over 60 days, certain ones that haven't been paid over 30 days, and then some that haven't been paid over 120 days. You're going to put all of the money in three different categories on this table and you're going to assign all of these weighted averages. Then you're going to assign a probability of default on all of these categories and by doing this, you're going to come to a number of what you expect not to collect off of your credit lines. So just a quick recap so far, because I know this can be a very grueling and mundane topic, but it does have a purpose. And trust me, I hope you see it at the very end of this episode. But accounts receivables are any kind of money that a company expects to collect because of a product or service that they have offered and that money has not been collected yet. Some of your most primary examples is money that comes from subscription services and sales of credit. 
When a company claims the amount of accounts receivables they have on their financial statements, they can't assume that they're going to be collecting all 100% of it. So they have to find a way to let you as an investor know what amount they don't expect to collect. And by following this allowance method, they can either figure it out by a portion of their credit sales or by using a default probability table. And by doing all of this, you can figure out, aside from the company's cash, how liquid they are in covering their current obligations. So I brought up talking about account receivables because I want to point out to you that these account receivables are essentially for a company just a way of cash inflows. For an account payable, a company can consider that as a cash outflow, but for these account receivables, they're considered cash inflows. And these cash inflows and outflows matter a whole lot, especially when I get to the next topic, which is known as accounts receivable factoring. Now, I remember when I learned this lesson in class, and the whole time I was just thinking, what the hell, is this a real thing? Because, let me tell you, none of it made sense to me then, and now it's just slightly starting to make the smallest amount of sense. Because what accounts receivable factoring is, is a financial transaction in which a company sells its accounts receivable to finance themselves at a discount. So remember how I said think of these accounts receivables as a cash inflow for a company? Because for you, it's a cash outflow when you pay this company, but for that company, it's a cash inflow. Well, what these companies are doing is they're selling the rights to these cash inflows to another financial institution, company, or whatever, these factoring companies, at a discount. Let me give you a clear-cut example. Let's say I have $1,000 worth of accounts receivable in this account, and I expect to collect $50 every single month as my cash flow from it. Maybe I'm a little tight on money and I need $500 right now, right away. What I can do is I can go to a factoring company and I can say, hey, based on my cash inflows of $50 a month, my credit line of $1,000 and all of this other stuff, how much can I sell this accounts receivable account for? And then they give you the money straight up and you give them the rights to collect these inflows. So some of these variables these factoring companies look into is the industry of the company itself, the volume of the receivables, the quality and the credit worthiness of the actual credit accounts within that pool, and then the average days outstanding for all of those credit lines. Now they definitely have all these algorithms to find out how to screw companies, I bet, because it's definitely their business model to make as much money percent as they can. And when a company goes out to these factoring agencies, there's two ways you can make out this contractual agreement. You can either make it with recourse or without it. So if a company were to sell their accounts receivables to another factoring agency, and they would do it with recourse, that would mean that the factoring agency can demand their money back from the company if the accounts receivables are not collected. So in a way, this is put up to protect the factoring agent for giving up the money to a company while they were expecting to collect on something that was risky. And if they don't collect upon it, they have every right to go back to that company and say, give me my money back. Now, if they didn't do this recourse action, then the factoring company would take all the risks. And if the payments were not made for that certain accounts receivable pool, then it would just suck to be them. 
Now, I remember junior year me in college sitting through these lessons of how certain institutions and banks could swap accounts receivable positions, and I was learning how to journal entry this. Don't ask me to explain that because I'm not going to lie, kind of forgot, but I do remember thinking the whole time, how are people able to exchange credit lines when you have to do all of this guesswork if you're even going to collect the money? And let me tell you, it gets even wonkier because when we were journaling out these entries, not only on paper would certain companies give over their accounts receivable on huge discounts, but they would do it because they needed the money. Well, my little brain thought, what happens if a company purposefully gives over a credit account that they know isn't going to get paid off? I mean, you can easily work some Excel magic and make it look like it's decent, and then you can scape away with a few hundred thousand dollars. But my plan isn't to dive into that rabbit hole today. As a matter of fact, the only reason I wanted to explain what accounts receivables are to you today is so that I can remind you of what the definition of a swap was. You remember my little derivatives market lesson? Well, for a recap, a swap is an agreement between two counterparties to exchange financial instruments or cash flows or payments for a certain time. The instruments can be almost anything, but most swaps involve cash based on notational principal amount. So based on that definition of a swap I just gave you, and the lesson I just gave out today, when these companies are changing out lines of credit for cold hard cash under certain agreements, they're performing a swap. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is just a small peek into the derivatives market. And I just find it crazy how a whole nother market can be made out to exist off of revolving lines of credit. But maybe I'm still just too young to understand it. After all, the financial system has been up and running forever now, right? And it's only been perfect. I mean, look at all the positions of power and wealth it's created for certain people. So clearly this system has zero flaws. I mean, as long as we're under the assumption that everyone's going to be paying off their credit, I would just hate to be the person holding the wrong bag at the wrong time, is all I'm going to say. Well class, if you've made it this far into the lesson, I especially want to say thank you, because I don't know how you were able to sit through a whole accounts receivable lesson. But most importantly, love you, have a good day, and until next time, ape out.
Don't get caught holding the bag. 